The scripture reading for this morning is from Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, the first 11 verses. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray together. Father, Lord, I'm just so empty and hungry and thirsty for you. And thank you so much for the sweet time of worshiping you this morning. What a joyful noise it is when believers gather together and lift their voices in unison to you, the God who has saved us. Lord, we weren't always like this. We always didn't have this song to sing, but now we do, and we sing it unto you, Lord God. So I pray, God, that you would help us this morning, clothe us with humility, Lord, I pray that your word would speak to us this morning in power, and I ask, God, that your purposes for this church would come to pass, because you are mighty, you are powerful. And we pray this all in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so as we progress our way through Lent this morning, um, just wanted to give you kind of an overview of where this sermon fits in the scope of everything. Pastor Charlie, the last couple of weeks, has brought two messages on prayer. And um, about a week before our elders' meeting, which was at the beginning of the month, I had picked up a book on humility. It's titled Humility by Andrew Murray. And um, um, I started reading through it. And God was just working in my heart so much through this, I started asking gee, would I preach about humility in a couple of weeks? And I would really recommend this book. It's so good. Actually, about chapter 4 or so, I just stopped underlining because at some point, there's really no purpose in underlining every single line in the book. felt like I was just practicing making straight lines. So it's just a really good book. And, and then I thought, well, no, it's, this is probably just for me. And then Pastor Charlie was mentioning that he was going to do two sermons on humility, or not on humility, I'm sorry, prayer, but he would like to stay on the theme of, of humility. So I thought, well, okay, I guess maybe this is God's way of saying, go with humility. 
And, um, and I had some thoughts from the book, and I actually about a week and a half ago, just want to kind of sh- share some insight as to how this sermon was birthed, birthed. I wrote down some thoughts, and it turned out to be about five pages worth, and I thought, wow, this is my sermon. Wow, I'm good. I'm done. So I thought, I'm really headed of the game here. I've never had a sermon done a week and a half before I actually had to preach it. And then at that point, too, I was going off of just what I kind of knew in my mind about Philippians 2, 1 through 11. I had chosen that as a passage. And it was Thursday this past week where I actually studied Philippians 2, 1 through 11 and realized that my sermon really had nothing to do with what this passage was talking about. So that turned out to be a glorified journal entry. And wrote the sermon that actually is what Philippians 2, 1 through 11. And it wasn't exactly where... I thought I was going to go with this, but I just trust that this is God's word to our church this morning. So that's kind of where this sermon comes in. So my goal this morning, above all things, is simply to instill in you a a desire to pursue humility in your lives. You may gain all kinds of other information about what humility is or isn't, why it's important, and so on and so forth. But really, I would look at this sermon as a success if you all walked out the door with a desire and a conviction to pursue humility in your lives. That that would be one of the top virtues that you would seek to cultivate in your mind and in your heart. All right, so with that, let's dive right into Philippians 2, 1 through 11. And first of all, Paul starts arguing for the importance of humility and the the importance of unity, I should say. The very first thing that Paul starts arguing about or arguing for is the importance of unity in a church. So in verses 1 and 2, he creates an if-then relationship. He writes, If there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, then, which is implied, it doesn't actually say then, but it's implied, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord, and of one mind. So basically what Paul is saying here is that since believers are unified and have experienced the same love of Jesus Christ, And since they participate in the same spirit, then this is what kind of people they should be. They should be unified people, right? They should be the kinds of people that are in unity with one another. In fact, that's the way that we experience unity. That's the way that unity with God is fleshed out, right? The way that we can discover whether or not we're unified to God... That should be fleshed out in the way that we are unified to one another. All right? So what's true vertically should be fleshed out and reflected horizontally. All right? I love God, but I hate everybody else. There's a mismatch there. If you love God, it would show itself in your love for one another. All right? That's where the rubber meets the road. Andrew Murray, in his book here, 
He put it this way, May God teach us that our thoughts and words and feelings concerning our fellow men are his test of our humility towards him. All right, so if you want to know, am I humble before God? Look at the relationships that you have in your life, and that will tell you. All right, so that's the first big reason why Paul is arguing for unity, because that's who we are as believers. We're unified. We should have unity among each other. All right. The second is the spread of the gospel. All right, if you guys would look with me at Philippians 127, verse 27 in chapter 1, go back a few verses. This is the context that Paul writes in. This is what he says. Only let your manner be of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for faith in the gospel. So for Paul, the unity of the believers, he sees that the advancement of the gospel is at stake. Now this word striving here, that's translated striving, is also the word that, from which we get the word compete from. So you could read that in one mind we should be competing side by side for the faith in the gospel. Now all of you sports fanatics will have an easy time getting your mind around this, okay? You're participating and competing in team sports. Basketball, I know, is really big right now. March Madness. Hooray, hooray. Ohio State or whatever, whoever's playing. Imagine if they're playing basketball and the guy takes a shot and his own teammate swats it. Get that out of my house. His own teammate. It's problematic. What if they're running down the court, and you wouldn't be able to see this on TV, but a fellow teammate comes up and whispers trash talk. You ain't got nothing. We're going to lose this game just like we lost the last big one. I'm in your head. You can have all kinds of fun with this one, right? Think about how ridiculous that would be. There's only five minutes left. We're down by six. There's no chance. You got nothing. You'll screw it up just like last time. Is that team going to win the tournament? No. Well, this is the issue that Paul is addressing in the church at Philippi. He sees that when believers are in disunity, they're actually working against each other instead of working with each other against their enemy. Right? That's the picture that he sees. And this is what he's fighting for. And this is why unity is really, really important for the spread of the gospel. So, in verse 3, if you look with me, he offers kind of a solution here. How do we become unified as a people of God? He says, do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let, it, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So verse 2 tells us what kind of people we should be in light of 
what verse 1 is saying. Now, verse 3 and 4 actually tell us, they give us insight as to how we become the kind of people that we should be in verse 2, right? This is how you actually become humble. This is how you work that out. Think of others as more important than yourselves. Look not only to your own interests, but interest of others. All right? So for Paul, to be the kind of people unified that he wants us to be, we cannot be prideful. We cannot have rivalry or conceit. That's a no-no. That's going to screw things up. That's like trash-talking your teammate. How does pride look? I wish I could take a whole sermon and just talk about pride and how it looks and humility and how it looks, but I can't. Not that I'm so advanced in humility that I would know how to fill a whole sermon with how to be humble. But uh, maybe it looks like this. You know what? I'm not perfect. I know, I know that. I'm not perfect. But what they did just crosses the line. Right? My sin is so small. It's, it's actually... We don't even have to deal with my sin. The real problem is over there. Right? Or how about this one? If I ran the zoo... Boy, this is how I would do it. Because I know everything after all. Or how about gossip? Psst. I can't believe that they let their kids act that way. Can you believe that? Do you agree? Maybe we should form a little coalition. The, we're the Better Christian Parents Coalition. Right? We're, we're just a cut above. We're not like them. Gossip and, hum, and pride... They love each other. And this is division in the church. On the other hand, humility. Paul says, not pride, but humility. Count others more significant than yourselves. Look also to the interests of others. Here's how maybe it could look. You know, this might be a good one for marriage, by the way. I actually had a lot of marriage scenarios in my mind because isn't that really where the rubber really meets the road just big time, huh? You know, I don't think I've begun to realize how much my actions have hurt you or caused hurt in you. That's humble. I actually could be a big problem in this scenario. I disagree with you, but I will consider what you're saying because... After all, I could be wrong, and there's a good chance you're right. That's humble. Or, what do you see as my greatest blind spot? Go to somebody that you trust and ask that question. It's a scary question to ask. Those could be reflections of humility, and it doesn't take a magician to figure out that humility rather than pride will save us from so much turmoil, right? And not only that, it will create unity in the church. It will create unity among believers. Okay, so that's Paul's answer as to how to become unified. But this is where the plot thickens. It's really interesting at this point, I think. 
it's really actually kind of a problem. The solution is a problem. It's almost like a trite answer. Just be humble. Don't be prideful. Just be humble. That is kind of like getting a fish to come on dry ground in your backyard and play fetch with you. Right? There it is, fish. Go get it. It's over there. Or, if you think that's a little too drastic, what about this one? Go to a procrastinator. All of us deal with procrastination from time to time, right? Maybe you, or maybe somebody that you know. And you tell them, hey, I have the solution for your procrastination. I got it. Instead of starting your work for your project that's due tomorrow, start it seven days before your project is due. There's a solution, right? Then you won't miss your deadline. Voila, problem solved. Okay, all of us know that it's not quite that simple, right? That kind of counsel seems a little bit trite. If only if it were that easy. And that's a little bit what it seems like with Paul saying, just don't be prideful, rather be humble. <laughs> Problem solved. End of story. And you know what? We are prone, we are totally inclined to pride. And that's, I think, what the point that I'm trying to make here is. The solution isn't as simple as just be humble. Don't be prideful. And I want to give you some theological undergirdings for all of that. But before I get into that, I do want to point out that our culture does not help us very much at this point. Our culture doesn't help us with the fact that we are prone to pride. We have iPods. Me pods. Now, I'm a big Apple advocate, I know that, so I can, I can smash Apple every once in a while, right? I, I have a Mac. We have Facebook pages that are dedicated to me. It's, it's basically a me shrine. I even have a TV station, my own TV station, my Fox 9. It's mine. And I, when I go out to eat, I can have it my way right away. It's all about me. Our culture trains us, whether you realize it or not, we are trained to think about me. And that doesn't help the problem. Now here are some theological undergirdings for all of this. Now let's look at uh, verse 3 and 4 there. Conceit literally means empty glory or vain glory. You see that in verse uh, 3. Rivalry literally means contention. Well, Satan's fall, let's go back all the way to the beginning. Satan's fall included these very pursuits. We, We know the story. When he was an angel in heaven, he looked at God and the glory that God had and basically said, I want that. And he contended for it in vain, And when he lost, he was relegated to the abyss. And now we fast forward to the Garden of Eden. Man and woman, man is given the command not to eat from the tree in the middle. And Satan 
basically tempts man and woman to fall into the very same trap that he himself fell into. They bit on the fruit, not when they said, oh, that looks like a piece of good fruit. No, it was, you will be like God. Really? I want that. I want that glory. And when they took a bite, they contended against God for his glory. In vain. And thus, they took the side of God's enemy instead of listening and obeying God. When they disobeyed God in that way, they linked arms with God's enemy, their adversary, and they went forward in rebellion against God. And this is where pride enters. And now the human race is perpetuated by Adam. As Adam goes, so goes the whole human race who have been born into sin, just like Adam has propagated sin. All of us, you and me, are alike, are born with a bent to contend against God for his glory. Romans 5.12 says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. Adam spread the sin of pride, so that the whole entire human race is infected with it. It is our natural bent. And naturally... If that characterizes our relationship between us and God, it will also characterize our relationship with one another. This is why Paul addresses disunity in the church, because he understands that we are prone to pride and seeking our own glory and exalting ourselves. And that breeds contention and disunity. John Calvin wrote this, We never truly glory in him until we have utterly discarded our own glory. It must, therefore, be regarded as a universal proposition. This is the really important part. That whoever glories in himself glories against God. So pride is like putting spiritual boxing gloves on and getting into the ring and contending with God for his glory. Now this is a bad idea because God is the undisputed champ. He's a hundred trillion and old against defeating people who rise up in pride to try to knock him off of his throne. Isaiah 48.11 says, My glory I will not give to another. God is jealous for his glory, and he will contend against anybody who tries to puff themselves up in pride against him. And when we contend against God, God opposes the proud. We lose. You nor I will not snap his winning streak. Right? We lose. And guess how else we lose? We not only lose with God, we don't have Him in our lives when we're contending against Him, we lose with one another. It's a double whammy. And the gospel is crippled, hobbling along, because we're fighting against each other. And that's why Paul is addressing this. All right? So, what's the solution to the solution? The issue here is that we know that we need to be not prideful but humble. 
And I think that the, that the answer that Paul gives here is that we need to have humble minds in Christ. Have this mind among you, which is yours in Christ Jesus. As a man thinks, so is he. Romans 12, 1 and 2 says, Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Right? The reason why we act prideful or humble is because it's the reflection of how we think about ourselves. The way that we think about ourselves is the way that we essentially act. And if we think we're the center of the universe, that's what we're going to act. We'll be prideful. All right? So the question is, who are we? Who are we? How does Paul see us? He's addressing believers. We are new creatures in Christ Jesus. Behold, the old has passed away, the new has come. We are no longer the, our old man after the representation of Adam. We are now represented by Jesus Christ. We have been born again to a living hope through, G, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We are a new man in Jesus Christ. So we are no longer in the old pattern, but we are in the new pattern. Now, it's really hard to break away from our old patterns, isn't it? It's really, really hard. It's kind of like a destructive relationship. Perhaps you have been exposed or uh, related to one in some way, shape, or form. I'm talking about a dating relationship that's a dead end, right? They're trying to make something work out. They're forcing it, forcing it. They kind of know it's a dead end. And finally, after two or three years or whatever, it just ends, right? They realize this has to stop. It's so destructive. It's so dysfunctional, all of this stuff. But the reality is, usually these relationships don't just sever. Okay, we're gone. We're moving on. No, instead of walking away to where they need to go, they keep hanging on. Oh, let's get back together. Okay, we, get, we, have to, we have to end this. No, let's get back together. You hang on to pieces of that relationship and slowly over time, over time, they move away and they distance themselves from that. That's kind of how it is for us as sinners who are no longer the old man, but we are a new creation in Christ. Despite the fact that we are new creatures in Christ, we love to hang on to our sin. Right? If only it were so simple that we would just break. Oh, new creature, don't deal with sin anymore. The reality is we move towards Christ. This is where I need to be. Oh, but I love self-pity. I just need to, you know, be self-pity for a little while. We move on. Okay, I know that that's sinful. I'm a new creature in Christ. Oh, gossip. Yeah, I agree. So-and-so over there. I don't really like him. I agree that, you know... I don't want to gossip about him, but I agree that he's just really annoying. But we're not gossiping, we just want to pray for him. We love to, to go back to our sin. And I think Paul understands this about ourselves too. Which is why he's sympathetic to it. He understands that the solution isn't as simple as saying, just avoid pride and be humble. Really, he could have ended the whole passage right then and there, Right? If we would have simply, in obedience, obeyed the fact that we shouldn't be prideful, but we should be humble, the problem would be solved. In fact, if you think about it, the Bible would be so much thinner. See how thick this is? Well, this isn't all that thick. It's a condensed, you know, small print and all that. But really, the Bible could probably be about, about this thick. Right there. 
If, you, if, if all it was is giving, if God giving us commands, right? If God was only interested in telling us what we need to do, and I'll go do it, this is all we would probably have in the Bible. That's my guess, anyway. We, would, we just need a couple of verses. Don't be prideful, be humble. Okay, here's some things. Look to others as more important than yourselves. Look to their other interests. That's all you need to know, isn't it? Well, not really. We need more than that. And Paul understands that. We are being peeled away from our old sinful nature. We need the solution to our pride. What is the solution to our pride? And I think that the solution that he gives us is by painting an awesome picture of Jesus Christ, the glory of our Savior. And that's why he transitions in verse 5, have this mind among yourself which is yours in Christ Jesus, to painting this amazing display. His heart is set on fire by what he sees in Jesus Christ. So the main breakthrough in this passage isn't that we need to be humble. The main breakthrough in this passage is how we actually become humble. Right? The reality is, anybody could tell us that humility is good. That it actually creates unity. But I don't think that the Holy Spirit inspired the Apostle Paul to confirm what Oprah Winfrey could have already told us. That's not why God inspired the Apostle Paul. He inspired the Apostle Paul so that he could speak what no eye has ever seen, nor ear has ever heard, nor has it entered into the thought of man. He inspired the Apostle Paul to give us a real solution to genuine humility. And how is this solution to our pride? How is this remedy for our humility? He looks to Christ. He gives us this amazing picture of Jesus Christ. How could we be anything but humble after looking and engaging with a picture of our Savior as he is about to give us? So let's look at what Paul has written for us here in Philippians 2, 6 through 8. How do we see Christ? And I want to give you this idea here that Paul is painting a picture of Adam in reverse. Adam in reverse. Perhaps some of you guys have heard about this. Look at Adam, the representative of the human race, and look at Christ, the representative of the new creation. Let's compare the two. Adam was in the form of man. Jesus was in the form of God. Right? Adam is man. Jesus is God. Adam grasped after equality with God. When he saw that he could become like God, Oh, I want that! I'm going for it! Here's a man grasping for God, Jesus, on the other hand, was God who did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He didn't jealously guard his right to be considered God. Man reaches upward. God condescends. Reverse. Adam refused to serve God. On the other hand, Christ made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant. Verse 7. Adam exalted himself. Christ humbled himself. 
Adam was disobedient to God, bringing sin and death upon the human race. Jesus was obedient to the point of death. You see, everything that Adam did in his pride to screw up the human race, Jesus reverses and restores. And what a glorious picture of Jesus Christ, who, even though it was God, came to this earth to live among sinners and to be subjected to all of their issues and their, and their hate and their pain and their violence. So Jesus did not just die. He didn't just become obedient to the point of death. He died on a cross. The cross is an instrument not just of death, but it is an instrument that's designed to maximize pain, to maximize humiliation, to maximize scorn, to maximize contempt. And why? Why did he have to die on the cross? And the answer to that is to absorb the full wrath of God the full judgment of God that Adam brought to the human race. Everything that Adam brought to the human race and everything that we participate in as sinful creatures, Jesus went to the cross to pay for that. He didn't just die. He actually paid for the sin. Adam spread sin and death through pride. Jesus, on the other hand, saves from sin, and accomplishes salvation through humility. Pride messes everything up. Humility fixes the problem. He is our Savior. He has created us anew after his own likeness. So Paul doesn't just give us information about Jesus. He gives us a picture that's designed to inflame our hearts with worship so that we would look to Jesus and we would see him. And that we would be compelled to worship him. So that we would be renewed in the likeness that we are being saved by. Right? How can we come to the place, I ask you, brothers and sisters, how can we come to the place where we get to the the point of verse 8, where Jesus becomes obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross, and recognize that his humility drank the wrath of God that we incurred upon him. How can you come to that place and have anything but utter humility and nothingness. You can't. The only thing that you can do is be totally silent and in awe. The cross is the point where all vestige of pride and all grounds for me thinking I'm something is totally ripped out. And guess what? That is the greatest news in the whole world. That is the gospel. To be ridded of self. To be ripped the, the, the weeds of pride in my heart. The inclination to think I am something and somebody. Christ, through humility, saved us from our pride. Do you know what our pride keeps us from? It keeps us from experiencing the fullness of God. As long as you are filled with yourself, God has no room to take root in your heart. You want yourself? Have it. You miss God. It's like having a full bucket of water 
and it's all contaminated and gross. Right? And you have a spigot over there that has fresh water. What do you got to do to get the fresh living water? You got to empty the bucket. That has to be poured out. And until that happens, you can't have real life. Martin Luther said, God made us from nothing. And until he gets us back to nothing, he can't make anything out of us. God's design is to bring us to nothing. And that is the gospel. That's the gospel. To be nothing. To be totally rooted out of self and any vestige of pride and right to boast in myself. That is good news, brothers and sisters. I hope that you feel this. We do not want to be filled with ourselves. We want to be emptied of ourselves so that God can occupy us and fill us with his presence. Andrew Murray says this again. May he teach us that our humility before him is the only power that can enable us to be always humble with our fellow men. Our humility must be the life of Christ, the Lamb of God within us. And this is what I really want us to understand. When we become humble and nothing, we participate in the salvation that God has bought for us through Jesus Christ. Only when we become nothing. Jesus is the author of our faith. How did he author our faith? In humility. He's the perfecter of our faith. How will he perfect us? Through humility. The only way that we can participate in salvation is to have Jesus Christ himself living in and through us. Therefore, the only way to participate in your salvation is by becoming nothing. By becoming humble. That's the only way. Otherwise, all you have is yourself. And guess what, you're, guess what we're good for in all of our pride? Disunity. Fighting, clamoring. I want to be the best. Maybe we're not so vocal about it, but we subtly find ways to make ourselves look better. In every situation. And if that's the way our church functions, or any church for that matter, all you have is disunity. And the gospel is, won't go forward. So let's talk here, and we'll bring this to a close, about the exaltation of Christ. Jesus, as the perfect Christian, noticed two things about the outcome of his humility. Aside from salvation that he accomplished for us, for the human race, A, exaltation. He was exalted to the highest name. He was given a name above all other names, so that the name of Jesus, every tongue will confess that he is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. And second, he glorifies God. He's exalted, God is glorified. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God so that in due time he will exalt you. It's not your job, brothers and sisters, to exalt yourself. Quit with that. It will get you nowhere. Let God exalt you. Be humble. You know, when we stop contending with God and with others, we actually get everything that we are striving for anyway, right? 100-fold. 
Don't we get everything 100-fold that we really want, what we're clamoring after and seeking after through our pride? God's plans are so much richer than what we can grab hold of for ourselves. Let it go and grab hold of what God has for you. God will fill you with all the satisfaction to your heart's content if you simply let it go. Pride only cripples. It only cripples. It's like Jesus talking to the Pharisees, right? When he talks to the Pharisees, they have the reward in full when they pray in front of everybody. What's the reward? They get the praise of man. Who cares? Let God exalt you. So I plead with all of you guys that we pursue the mind of Christ, the humble minds that can only be ours in Christ Jesus, who is the author and perfecter of our faith. You know, I suspect, to be honest, I'm going to press in a little bit here, that if we were to take a survey and ask you, what are your top goals to grow as a Christian this year? It might be something like, I'm going to memorize more scripture, I'm going to become more theologically buff, read some Wayne Grudem, some John Piper, got my me phone, I got 60 hours of John Piper alone on this thing. I could have an MDiv if I listened to everything I have on my iPod. And that's all great and good. I am not. I love, the, I love those resources. We should memorize scripture. We must. But for how many of you would humility be at least in the top three? And I'm becoming more and more convinced that maybe humility is the highest virtue that we could pursue as Christians. The highest. You can get really, really good seeds, but if you're planting them in crud, they're not going to grow. You can memorize scripture and be prideful. So, I urge all of us, let's pursue humility. At least in the top three. We are an individualistic culture. And that has seeped into the church, I would have to admit. Now, Pastor Charlie, over the last couple of weeks, has been calling us to prayer. But what I've really appreciated about his emphasis is corporate prayer. And I think he's right on. When he says that when we pray together as believers, God shows up in powerful ways. But we have lots of obstacles to overcome to get together and pray. Just getting together. And I think part of that is individualism that has crept into the church. All of us have everything that we need. If we have a problem, we buy it. We buy the solution. Which means that as American Christians, all we really have to do is show up on Sunday morning and that's our church. More or less. That's at least some of the, the downsides that could be said of us. We don't really have to be dependent on each other. And I think the way that American individualism has 
solve the problem of sin and pride is to just basically create your own little world where you can have everything just how you want it. When two kids are arguing over a toy, what's the solution? Well, buy another one. Right? Well, buy another one. Let's not teach them to be humble. Let's just buy another one. And as long as I can just put a big fence around my yard and have my own computer and have my own everything in this, I don't have to, I don't have to deal with my neighbor. I don't even have to talk to him. And I wonder if individualism has subtly replaced our need for pride as Christians in America. One of the reasons why I think humility is not a high virtue in the church in, in, the, in the U.S., I suspect, I don't, I'm not saying this definitively, is because we don't really need humility. We've managed a way to have the appearance of unity. We just don't get together. We don't rub shoulders, so we don't really need humility. We just show up on Sunday, we wear our nice suits, buy a new tie, look really good, and go home. Why would we need humility? Well, I do pray, and I do hope that we will, as believers, gather together to pray And if we don't do that, at least let it not be because we don't have a solution to deal with our hang-ups with each other. I do hope that we can get past some of the things that we have with one another because we have the mind of Christ, the humble mind of Christ, where we can deal with one another and bear with one another and be smaller and look to other people's interests above our own. One last thing. We do have the veneer of unity. We can accomplish that. But what about a huge longing and thirst for real community? There is that out there, you know. People really want to be a part of something. They want to be in a community, in a family we long for togetherness. So let's pursue God together. Let's pursue humble minds together. And we will pursue God together. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word to us. And I just pray, God, that you will do with it as you please, Lord God. And as I said at the beginning of this sermon, my main goal was to convince us and inspire us to want to pursue humility. God, I pray that that would have been done, that we would long and want and thirst for humility, for nothingness, so that you will fill us for your glory and our joy. Amen.